My guest on this episode is Jaha Dukure, a woman who helped end child marriage and female genital mutilation in her home country of Gambia a few years back. Look, as a privileged white guy, consistently in spaces and movements that have social justice in mind, I'm used to having to check my privilege, watch my language, be able to be curious without being voyeuristic. All those things are important when you're a guy of my demographic that, that's trying to come into these spaces and be as helpful as you can. With this one, I felt a little bit over my head uh, just because I knew so little about FGM. I didn't even know the acronym, to be honest with you. I came into the interview a bit nervous. Luckily, Jaha is awesome and super inspiring and easy to chat with and patient. And I learned a ton. The stuff she's done is incredible. You're about to hear about it. It's, it blew me away. This is the type of stuff that I wanted to do when I created this podcast. I wanted to bring subjects that we vaguely knew about, but we didn't really know and meet the heroes that are really making a difference. And so I hope you enjoy the episode. I hope you and your loved ones are safe and healthy. Let's get into it. Jaha. Hello. Hello. It's great to have you here. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. You are one of the most impressive people I've met. Uh, you are a Nobel <laughs> Peace Prize nominee okay. for your work in FGM. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a bit about what is FGM? So FGM is um, a term used to describe female genital mutilation, which is the partial or total removal of the female genitalia. And where is this practice? FGM um, currently happens in 28 countries in Africa, as well as some parts of the Middle East and parts of Southeast Asia. Why are people practicing FGM? I mean, people practice FGM for different reasons, right? Some people believe that it's cultural. Some people believe that it's religious, while others believe it's for hygiene purposes. Yeah. While some just believe that it's for aesthetic purposes. It's hard for me to imagine what this looks like or how how it works. What does this process look like? So, I mean, I think a lot of people, it's sometimes called female circumcision. And a lot of people would think of male circumcision when they hear it. But unlike male circumcision, FGM usually is more than just circumcision because it involves the removal of the clitoris as well as the labia. And as you know, the female clitoris is the most sensitive organ in a woman's body and when you remove that this is usually done by people that are not certified doctors or midwives it sounds like also in a lot of these places they maybe don't have any pain relievers or anything exactly so it's done at home in local settings yeah this is something that has psychological effects it has physical effects i've met women who have developed calloids because they've been through fgm yeah i've met women who have continuous urinary tract infections because they've been through FGM. I've met women who have died during childbirth because of FGM. When this is happening, outside of the immediate pain, there's a lot of dangers associated with it. Absolutely. One of the ways that I like looking at it is this is a pain that you live with for the rest of your life. It's one that keeps coming back and back. When you get married, you're reminded of what you went through. When you deliver a baby, you're reminded of what you went through. Every time you have sex, you're reminded of what you went through. Is that because it's still painful there? I mean, it's different. To be fair, it's different for every woman that has experienced FGM. 
in some cases, women will tell you that they don't ever enjoy sex and it is painful. And there are other women who tell you it hasn't done anything to them when it comes to intimacy. Yeah. And recently, I mean, we've been working with doctors to give women some kind of restoration, especially to the clitoris, wherein there are surgeries that can be performed so that women can start gaining some level of sensation. It's not the same, right. but at least it's able to restore some level of dignity and take away that feeling of not being enough and having something so meaningful to you taken away from you. 74% in my home country, but globally, wow. 200 million women have been through FGM. Wow, so this isn't some niche issue. No, 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 this, no, no, is, no. this is practiced widely in this region. I mean, in countries like Somalia, it's 99% of all women that go through FGM. And then you have places like Guinea-Conakry, where it's 88. You have places like Mauritania, it's closer to the 90s. You have Mali, you have Sierra Leone, where it's 96%. So this is not an issue that is just those people out there. It's 200 right. million women. And every single day, 6,000 girls are cut around the world. Why did this all start? What were the how, how far does this go back and how did this start? I mean, it goes back before religion, so pre-Abrahamic times. And... Um, no one really know where it started, but the first occurrence that I think we've seen in any historic or religious text was during the times of Prophet Abraham, I guess, when the older wife decided to subject the younger wife to FGM so that she doesn't get pleasure. So it was done wow. not for good reasons, but yeah. it was actually to... As a means of controlling Exactly, women. of controlling her. It wasn't something that came because of religion. It was something that was always there. When did you go from kind of understanding this was in existence to, I want to do something about that? I mean, I think growing up in the Gambia, right, every girl that was born in my family went through it. I had a half-sister that died from me when I was very young, around 10, 11. Wow. So people are dying during For, the procedure. It's not by doctors. So when yeah. someone starts bleeding continuously and you're not a doctor, you don't even know what to do. The loss of blood, the infections that come with it, you yeah. die from it. Yeah. So I had a half-sister that died from it. And at that time, I didn't know because I was very young. I was about 10, 11. But I always knew in the back of my head because there was a lot of commotion around her death. And I remember that, like I remember bits and pieces of it. And when I became a bit older and it was my turn to get married, I think that's when I came face to face with what this actually means. You know, I also partially grew up here in America and went to high school here, did my undergrad as well as graduate school here in the US. And I became pregnant with a daughter and I remember when I knew I was having a girl and then after Khadija was born, yeah. I realized nothing I went through in my life would be something that my daughter gets to experience. Not only FGM, but I was a child bride twice. I was married off first when I was 15. That's when I knew what FGM was. And then I was married off again at the age of 17. So to me, it was those harmful traditional practices that have impacted my life so much that have made me stronger. And I think the pain that I went through made me relate so much to human suffering. And it was so much more than just my daughter. Every year, 68 million girls are forced to get married against their will. And you think about the FGM is 200 million women around the world. So yes, I have a daughter that I need to protect. But someone also needs to stand up and say, especially from our communities, being that we have the lived experience, 
So we needed to stand up and say, you know what? This is impacting us. It's about me. It's about my mother. It's about my sister. It's about my daughter. And I'm making the decision that this is one tradition I don't want to carry forward. I'm going to spoil the result of what you did with that energy a bit right now, which is you took that energy and you eventually had a dictator make the practice illegal. How does someone <laughs> go about doing that? So your motherly instincts kick in. Enough is enough. Mm-hmm. How do you go from this moment of, of anger that I think we're all familiar with? You actually got this across the line and eradicated it in your country, which is unbelievable. How'd that happen? So I think it was thefts, right? I started my NGO in Georgia. I used to live in Atlanta and did a lot of policy work with the Obama administration and changed the way the U.S. looked at this issue and how they tackled it. So with the success of working with the U.S. Senate as well as Congress and getting policies to protect women in the U.S. and getting funding so that they can have access to services, I decided that it was important that I take this work back to my home country. But at the time, Gambia was, our president was a dictator. He had been in power for more than 20 years and everyone was afraid of him. You say something that he doesn't like, you end up disappearing and you end up killed. Women were raped, women were tortured. Women had the worst circumstances during his reign. And I remember when I decided to leave the U.S. and go back to the Gambia and was looking for someone to support me on that trip, A lot of donors told me no because they knew that they were sending me to a death sentence. So everyone that I went to looking for funding would tell me, we can't fund that. You would die if you step foot in the Gambia. Why would we know that and give you money to do that? Was there anything you saw that made you think that there was a chance that you could get this done? Or was it was it just this passion and rage that you I mean, were... I just knew that two things would either happen, right? Yeah. I can go and succeed or I can go and die. Either way, the world would wake up. So if I succeed, people will know that this is happening. If I die, simply because I died, might wake a world wherein people will care. Being that I'm a U.S. citizen, being that the media was hyper-interested in my work, and I had places like Cosmopolitan Magazine, for instance, Vogue, and L'Oreal. This was before you went back over. Exactly. So CNN yeah. and BBC, Al Jazeera, everyone was covering my work at the time. So there was a lot of interest in my profile because when I started doing this, It was rare for an African to come out so boldly and say, you know what, I went through this, but now I'm saying enough is enough and we need to do something about this. It was always Western organizations that were campaigning against this practice, but an African movement that was truly owned by Africans yeah. was something that was rare and a bit refreshing, which I guess was why the media covered my work a lot. I didn't realize before you went back to Gambia, you were already building a lot of political power and working on this in other countries. Is that right? Exactly. Especially right. here in the U.S. Against female genital yeah. mutilation yes. in the U.S. Yes. Is it an issue here? That's how like people started knowing who I was. In 2014, before I went to Gambia, I started a change.org petition where I wanted President Obama to look into the issue and see the number of women in the U.S. that are impacted by this. It was a crazy idea, right? Because yeah. at the time, no one knew who I was and why would I be able to petition the President of the United States, right? right. I remember my family just thinking, what the... F- F are you doing? This, why this would, is an adult podcast. You can go for okay, it. Okay, what the like. fuck are you doing? Like, <laughs> why would you do something like that? Yeah. And more than 220,000 people signed my change.org petition. That's when the news coverage started, right? And then President Obama heard about me and then ordered the CDC to conduct the study. And the CDC did the study and found that half a million girls in this country are at risk of going through FGM. Whoa. What puts an American at risk of going through it? I mean, a lot of reasons, right? In the U.S. is so diverse. We yeah. have 
different cultures here, even though this is the United States of America, the country that thrives on liberty, freedom, equality, and all of these things, right? Yeah. But we still have deep-rooted cultures that have migrated to right. the U.S. and people are not just going to abandon who they are simply because they live in the U.S. It's a shocking number. It is. So even before finding out the figures, I worked with Senator Harry Reid before he retired. Yeah as well as Congressman Joe Crowley of New York. We were able to get the Girls Protection Act, which yep. made it illegal to transport girls out of the U.S. for the purpose of FGM. So with that type of success, I knew if I can go against the U.S. government and get my way, and I've already built relationships in the U.S. Senate, I've already built relationships in Congress. If I went missing, it's not anyone went missing. Yeah. Yeah. So you felt... I'm sure on both sides, like if I go missing, this becomes a story anyway. Exactly. And maybe some of my notoriety is a little bit of a shield that they can't just Do, toss me away exactly. like they're doing to other people. Exactly. What was the president's name? Of yeah, yeah, Jamie. He's the guy that said he can cure HIV with banana leaves. I don't know if you've ever I, I didn't. How'd that work out for him? It didn't. It didn't work out. Know. Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> sound like sound science. No, that, that's the, how crazy this yeah, guy this was. Yeah, this is who you were working with. Exactly. Okay, so you now arrive in Gambia. And... We registered the organization in the Gambia, and then we started the first youth movement wherein we organized conferences and trained young people from all over the country. We went to all public domains with our messages. We did media campaigns on community radios. We did billboard campaigns, even though this was illegal, somewhat illegal at the yeah. time in the Gambia because the president had ordered no one to talk about FGM on the radio or TV. And we just came doing interviews left, right, and center and at times even paying for spots at community rate because we knew that money had power, right? Right. So if we came and we wanted to have a program on your radio and you're like, it's illegal, we would pay for a one-hour slot. Once we have that one-hour slot, we go live and we talk about whatever it is. So we did it in a way wow. that was so reckless but was also so in your face yeah. that you couldn't deny. And then I always traveled to Gambia with heavy media Mm. like the guardian was doing a documentary on my life at that time yeah so whenever i would go into gambia you would have like a bunch of camera crew and these were really big professional camera crews with heavy cameras and equipments and all of those so every time i would come into the airport when i land the first thing they would do is they would take me with my camera crew yeah. and they would question us and he's been a number of times where i've been arrested as well but i think what the president was so impressed with was the fact that I never went public with any of what they did. Every mm. time they harassed me, I would tell like my Western media friends away with me, this information can't go anywhere. Because if we leak this information that I was arrested, there's a huge possibility that we will never get what we want. So as hard as this is, we just need to let it go and be nice and play their politics. So we did that for almost a year. And then I found out that the president was doing a national tour across the Gambia. So I rented a car and followed the president everywhere he went. And the NIA noticed that I was there, which is our version of the CIA. I remember we were in one village and they just came and arrested me. And it was probably the worst and most fearful experience of my life because like, you've heard of these guys and you know the kind of things that they do. At that moment, you're like, oh shit, this is it. My family didn't know where I was. No one knew that I had gone on this trip. So I can disappear and they can ever deny seeing me. Luckily for me, the head of the NIA, I had met him once before that encounter. 
And I remember when I met him, he walked into the room and he was supposed to, I guess, investigate me and interview me and find out what I was doing. And the moment he walked into the room and introduced himself and I jumped, I was like, you're Yanko Babaji. And he was like, yes. I was like, I've heard so many horror stories about you. Like, I thought you were this monster, gigantic, scary human being. And you're so soft. You're like a teddy bear. And he just started laughing. So he was like, who are you? And then I was like, well, this is who I am and this is why I'm here. I have no interest in politics. I'm not here because Jamming is a dictator. I'm not here because he has killed so many people. I don't care about that shit. I'm here because of FGM and child marriage. And that's the only thing I care about. So we became somewhat friends. On that very day when I was arrested, he called right away and told them to let me go. Like they have my file. They've been following me. They've been screening my calls. There's not a thing that I've done that they are not aware of. So he told them to let me go. Because of that, I guess my life was saved. He then reached out to the president and said, she is harmless. Just hear her out and see why she's doing this. And by you doing this, you might even get goodwill from the rest of the world. People might forget about all your human rights violations because you've done something good for women. So just hear her out. So that's how I was able to get connected to the president. You became a positive PR opportunity for <laughs> yes. the president. So but I did. by sticking, it sounds like one of the lessons learned is just by staying issue focused yeah. and not being viewed as a revolutionary, yeah. you, kind of, you found a lane to work with this guy. Exactly. Did you know you could sell it as a good PR campaign or did that kind of happen organically? I think it happened organically. Yeah. At the time, it's not what I was thinking. Right. I'm quick to realize things. So I remember when I met the president, the first thing he did was he held my hand and he was like, why are you so adamant about this issue? Mm. And then I was like, I went through it. So I'm not a stranger. It's not like I'm coming in and telling you this is bad and your culture is bad. I live with this every single day. And you are a dad. You talk about women's rights. Like with everything else that you do, you always claim that you were the first president to make education free for all girls. Then this is your opportunity to actually show that you mean it. And, you know, I left. And I was so terrified and I was, you know, this guy's going to kill me. And then I found out because my kids were in Atlanta at the time. So I found out that my kids had gotten into a car accident on their way to school. Jeez. So on that same day, I flew out of Gambia, went home and the kids were fine. And I looked at my phone. There was a number of voice notes from the Gambia. I listened and it was the Minister of Presidential Affairs. And he said, we need you to come back to Gambia. We found out you left the country without telling anyone you need to fly back. The president wants to make an announcement <laughs> and he wouldn't make the announcement without you. And then that's when I hanged up the phone and called someone close to the president. His name is Lamin Manga. And I called Mr. Manga and I was like, you know, Mr. Manga, I'm trying to find out because if you guys are trying to like get me in trouble, just be honest with me and tell me not to come back because I'm not trying to die and I don't do jail. And he said, you know, you did it. I don't know what it was, but Jame is actually going to ban FGM. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And I was in my room and I screamed. But I also cried because no one believed in this, right? Like when I went home, literally no one believed I can do it. They thought you were going towards it. Yeah, and everyone thought I was crazy as well. And everyone thought I was naive. Everyone thought I was stupid for like messing around with a dictator. And I looked at my kids and hugged them and I knew they were perfectly fine. I booked a flight again. And when I landed, they picked me up from the airport and we went straight to the presidential palace. And um, when we arrived, the president announced that he was banning FGM in the Gambia. And then we also tabled the bill at our national parliament, which made FGM illegal. 
But not only that, we were also able to push for a bill against child marriage. Gambia became one of the few African countries that have laws against both child marriage and FGM. Did you expect him to do the child marriage? No. No. Mm -mm. When you had those conversations with him, you sold him on the whores of both. Exactly. You know, he has a daughter. Yeah. To me, that's what this was about. It's like, you're a dad. If you're not going to let your daughter go through that, why are you letting other people's children go through that? At the end of the day, it's your moral leadership, right? I always tell people to this day, I have nothing to lose. If I end up dying because of FGM, you have to think about other people in history, right? Martin Luther King, he died for our freedom, right? And you have to think about a lot of the people that have given up their lives and something meaningful came out of it because they died for this. We have a lot of things that are available to us. So if I have to sacrifice my life so that FGM is no longer a thing, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I wouldn't want that because I'm a mom, right? And my children need me. And I do believe that I have a role to play yeah. in the future of my country, in the yeah. future of my continent. And I want to be there for that. What's next in terms of both like the implementation in Gambia and also stopping this thing everywhere else? Africa. Like Africa. I'm building a movement. I don't want there to be one Jaha. I want there to be millions of Jahas across the continent that mm. are empowered, that are strong, that are able to not only defend their own rights, but defend future generations that are to come. And I want us to find them because I don't think I'm unique. I don't think I'm special. I've been very fortunate to be given a platform and now I need to share that platform. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get out of here, I always want to ask, how can listeners, how can people get involved? How can we be great advocates and allies to you? We're pushing the Africa-led movement, which doesn't always resonate with the Western foundations and international NGOs. So we need allies. We need supporters. We need people that believe in our mission and our way of doing things. I'm not donor-driven, and I think that is very important for people to realize. I don't do this for donations. I do this because I strongly believe that it's wrong. But I can't do it alone as well. So I need the support to rally behind us because we can't get it done. If there's a single issue that I believe we can eradicate in my lifetime, it's FGM with the right type of investment. Well, yeah. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank, thank you for coming on love the show. You. And thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so happy to meet people like you because I think overall this is what it would take to change the world. And it's been an honor and I'm excited about the future. Yeah, we got work to do together. We got another uh, 50, 60 years, I think. So, so uh, it's all uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. Without this coronavirus. We're in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. But fantastic. No, it's been amazing. Thank you for joining me on What We Don't Know. If you liked what you heard, we post the full interviews on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. If you become a patron, you'll have access to those full interviews plus other exclusive content. 50% of the revenue that this podcast generates goes towards the initiatives and organizations of our guests. So you'll not only be supporting this podcast, but you'll also be supporting some amazing, amazing work. If you'd like to follow us on social, we're at WWDKpod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On YouTube, you can find our channel if you search What We Don't Know Podcast. If you go to our website, www.dkpod.com, you can sign up for our newsletter where we share all the latest content. All right. Hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.